You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Good morning, uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, thank you very much for coming today to this uh, event at the Carnegie Endowment on uh, Iran oil prices and the global economy, uh, part of our attempt here at Carnegie uh, to connect the dots uh, between the big uh, political developments and the, uh, and the international economy. Um, we have uh, uh, to discuss this issue, uh, Karim Sajapur, who uh, I'm sure you know is uh, with us here at Carnegie and one of the uh, leading uh, authorities on uh, what's happening on Iran. Uh, we also have uh, uh, Jamie Webster, who comes back uh, to us, um, Senior Manager, uh, Petroleum 5 PFC Energy, uh, to talk about uh, what's happening in the oil markets and the implications of uh, some of these uh, uh, developments in Iran on uh, uh, oil prices, the prospects for oil prices, and last but not least, to my left, is our good friend, uh, Jörg de Cressin, who also uh, comes back uh, to Carnegie. Uh, he is uh, a deputy director uh, at the IMF Research Department, and he is uh, uh, the person uh, who is directly leading the preparation of the world uh, economic outlook. Uh, so between these uh, three gentlemen, I think... Uh, we are very well uh, served, very well positioned uh, to discuss uh, this uh, uh, complex connection of issues. Uh, let me begin then by asking each of our panelists uh, to give us their take uh, uh, on their particular uh, uh, on their particular angle at this. Uh, so, uh, uh, Karim on Iran, uh, Jamie on. Uh, the oil markets, and York on the global economy. We'll start with that. Then we'll have a conversation among the panel. Then we'll open it up uh, to uh, questions and answers. So, Karim, you want to kick us off? Sure. Thank you, Udi. Thank you all for coming. And uh, I'm going to be very brief because I look forward to hearing from uh, Jamie and York as well. Um, and I'll be brief about um, what I see as the domestic calculations within Tehran right now, both with regards to uh, the nuclear issue, the nuclear negotiations, and as it relates to the price of oil. Um, historically, we can always say that um, the Iranian regime, the Iranian supreme leader, has long been averse to compromise uh, while being pressured. Um, his philosophy is that when you compromise under pressure, that doesn't alleviate the pressure. That shows weakness and invites even more pressure. But the, the context has somewhat changed, and the Iranian regime is now subject to unprecedented um, international political and economic coercion in the form of the um, uh, central bank sanctions, the, the, central, uh, the U.S. Congress sanctions against Iran's uh, central bank, and the looming EU oil embargo, which is scheduled to um, be enacted, I think, sometime in late, late July. Um, so, so the context is, has somewhat changed. Uh, Jamie is going to describe um, um, where Iran's um, oil production is at, but it's, it's kind of reached historic lows um, um, since the 1979 revolution. 
And what we've noticed um, in the last uh, month or so since the um, nuclear negotiations in Istanbul is that um, whereas in the past Iran um, has um, commonly approached um, the nuclear discussions or any conversation about the nuclear issue um, by showing um, defiance and intransigence, um, their diplomatic body language has started to change a little bit. Their rhetoric has started to change anymore. It's no longer um, showing signs of uh, utter defiance and intransigence. Um, they're beginning to show um, signs of conciliation. Um, I think it's far too early to, um, to uh, predict that they're going to go to the next round of negotiations, which are slated to take place May 23rd, I believe, in Baghdad. Um, ready to make a deal. Uh, but I think one thing that they have learned is that simply um, 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 uh, kind of being utterly defiant and intransigent um, has uh, united the world against them in a way which they didn't anticipate. So, so certainly their diplomatic body language, as I mentioned, um, has changed. Um, I, I think that one factor which is likely going to uh, inhibit the probability of some type of a deal uh, is the U.S. presidential election, I would argue. I think in, a, in an election year, it's going to be more difficult for the Obama administration to offer Iran um, the types of concessions they may need to, to justify a deal domestically. Um, I, I think that's going to be one factor. And, and second, I think um, um, the, the EU oil embargo, uh, likewise, it's, it's unclear um, I think it's certainly been uh, certainly Iran's goal to get a postponement of that uh, oil embargo, um, but it's unclear whether Iran is able to do or ready to do um, what it would take in exchange uh, to get that embargo. And, and we can talk about that, what that is, but I think um, the, the broad contours of, of that deal are probably well known to you, which is you know, capping enrichment at 5%, agreeing to some type of uh, uh, intrusive inspections regime, and sending out a sizable por portion of its, of its low-enriched um, uranium. Um, a couple of factors, I think, which are, are, are worth mentioning. Um, uh, when I think Uri first, um, uh, and I ha when Uri and I first had the, the conversation about this panel, um, the, the threat or the concerns of an Israeli military strike on Iran were quite high. Um, in the last uh, several weeks, um, uh, given that several of um, uh, Israel's top uh, kind of intelligence and, 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 and uh, military folks have come out very much uh, in opposition to um, uh, an Israeli strike on Iran, um, I would say that likelihood has diminished significantly. Um, it's not um, 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 the threat it was once perceived as several weeks back. Um, I think that's going to have mixed results. On one hand, I think oil prices, uh, the oil markets have somewhat reacted to that, and the risk premium has, has come down. Uh, on the other hand, the, the threat or the concerns of an Israeli military strike were one factor, not the factor, but one factor uh, in keeping uh, Russia and China and the EU and the US all on, on, um, on the same page with regards to, to sanctions. Um, and you may see that now that the threat of uh, an Israeli military strike has somewhat diminished, that the sense of urgency that the Russians and the Chinese have at remaining on the same page um, with the US and EU may have decreased somewhat. Um, the French elections are also worth mentioning. Um, in the past, um, it's been interesting that um, 
Um, the French government has been to the right of the Obama administration with regards to Iran policy and with regards to the issue of nuclear proliferation. Um, many people have been anticipating that now with the change of government in France, you will see uh, a somewhat more conciliatory approach or a softer approach out of the French. Um, this morning, um, uh, Francois Hollande released a statement. I'll quote him. He said, um, I've not criticized the firm stance of Nicolas Sarkozy regarding, regarding the risks of nuclear proliferation. I will confirm it with the same force and the same will. And I will not accept that Iran, which is perfectly entitled to access civilian nuclear energy, could use this technology for military purposes. So, you know, the signs, it's, it's still premature to say, but I, I wouldn't predict um, that you will see a significant difference um, now in French policy. And I'll just end on, on saying this, and, and, and Jamie and York can speak to this more than I can, but um, over the last uh, decade, when we talk about oil prices, um, um, uh, Saudi Arabia um, has, has frequently said, and I can remember this um, you know, since 2003, Saudi Arabia saying, well, our, our sweet spot for the price of oil is, is $55 a barrel. And then uh, over time, they would say, well, our sweet spot, we would like to have it around $70 a barrel. <laughs> and then, you know, a couple of years later, our sweet spot is around $90 a barrel. And the last time I spoke to a Saudi official uh, last week or so, he said around $100 a barrel now is our sweet spot. So as oil prices keep going up, um, the comfort level of countries like Saudi Arabia and other Gulf countries also go up. And there's also an interesting phenomenon in the U.S. with the advent and the, the de development of, of shale oil and shale gas um, that, you know, those, those types of um, 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 industries, shale oil and shale gas, are only economical when oil is also um, at a certain number. So there seems to be kind of an um, inadvertent broad collusion among several forces who have competing interests to keep oil prices um, somewhat high. Um, so it's not just Iran um, that would like to see very high oil prices. I think there's other countries as well. But I'll end my comments there and look forward to your questions. Thank you very much. So Saudi Arabia has a sweet tooth, as I understand. <laughs> That's fine. Uh, the, uh, uh, let me ask Jamie to pick it up there. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I would, uh, actually, I would, I would add, Karim, that I think uh, Saudi's uh, real sweet spot is about $1 less than whatever the global economy can handle. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> at the end of the day, everybody always likes to get as much money as they, yeah, exactly. as they, as they can without, without uh, killing off the golden goose. Uh, 2011 was, uh, was, had two kind of big shocks within oil markets. One was the Arab Spring. Uh, which took off substantial production, or essentially all production, off of uh, Libya. And then from the demand side, there's a demand shock uh, after Japan suffered from its earthquakes and suddenly had to increase its, uh, its use of, uh, of crude and diesel for, uh, for power generation. Uh, as 2011 ended and as Libya started to, uh, to come back and bring its production back, uh, the, suddenly 2012 was really turning into the year about, uh, about Iran. And so while you would have expected that Saudi Arabia could have brought its, its production down as Libya brought its production back up, instead it's had to keep its production uh, up quite a bit. Despite this, you've seen the price, uh, at least until recently, steadily rise in the last several months. And we would argue that the, the real root cause of all of this is really the hard uh, going after of Iran uh, on a number of, from a number of different countries regarding uh, sanctions and the concerns about a lot of uh, by a lot of particularly Asian buyers about the risks of war, uh, inadvertent or otherwise, within 
within the Gulf, which has caused substantial stock building within uh, India, China, and other Asian nations. Right now, we are actually uh, producing about 2.8 million barrels on, of oil more than we did last year. This is globally. But our demand is only up around a million barrels of oil. So what we're essentially saying is you're producing about 1.8 million barrels of oil more than you actually need. This is our estimates for, uh, for the year. So this would normally indicate that there is just far too much production and you should actually have a substantial uh, price decline. That it is essentially there's just far too much oil that is, that is uh, chasing after too few demand places. Instead, because of the concerns and the risks about uh, something going on in Iran, as, as well as uh, suddenly the uh, Iranian production being shut off after July 1, and it's already started to bring down its, its production, as well as concerns about and risks about uh, production out of Sudan, Sudan uh, out of Syria, out of Yemen. Instead, this otherwise bearish sort of market has actually been seen as, as a time for, you know, to grab the oil while you can because who knows if it's going to be here uh, in the second half of, uh, of the year. This has really kind of created an environment where you've got so much oil floating around and you see it even in the, in the stock uh, numbers that are released by the EIA every week, particularly last week when you saw substantial uh, crude builds within the United States you've really started to move to a point where suddenly uh, the oil prices is, is at a point where it's just there really is too much uh, in it, and too much supply in the markets. That combined with what appears to be, and when I'm speaking about political uh, comments, I often am, am putting it in the, in the guise of what my, what my clients, which are often oil traders, say, which don't necessarily mean that I agree with them, but these are how they, uh, that, how they, how they view uh, the world, is that with a less of a chance of either um, an attack with uh, Iran or even the potential for some sort of breakthrough where suddenly this, well, we estimate 700 to 800,000 barrels a day of Iranian uh, exports suddenly not having to find another home. You've got suddenly a, a much looser sort of environment. That combined with some, some uh, economic indicators that are not as rosy as some were hoping is really what kind of precipitated this oil price decline that you saw on Friday and you saw a little bit more uh, this morning. Uh, right now, Brent, at least as I left my office, is around 112, 113 down, you know, uh, $8 or so from, from last week. And uh, uh, WTI, that is, you know, kind of U.S.-based uh, uh, internal uh, uh, mid-continent prices, around $97 uh, a barrel. But we don't think that there is a potential, even if there is suddenly a, uh, an announcement, say, at the Baghdad meeting later on this month or some other or at the uh, IAEA discussions later on uh, before that meeting, if there was suddenly a, a, a big announcement that Iran has suddenly seen the error of its ways uh, and Khamenei has, has suddenly decided that he wants to play nice and will do whatever, he want, whatever everyone wants, uh, even if you suddenly saw that happen and there was a sudden price correction down, there is still quite a bit that is leading, that is going to help push that price up uh, and keep it up elevated uh, around the $100 mark. And there's two things. And one, Karim has already mentioned to, which is that sweet spot, which is not really so much a sweet spot anymore as this is the money that we need to get in order to continue uh, to provide our economies with the sort of growth that they need. Recall that a lot of these uh, oil exporting nations are still extremely nervous about the, as of, about the 
implications of the Arab Spring and concerns and risks about it occurring in their own country has caused them to increase their own spending internally. That, of course, raises the amount of money that they need uh, for, their own, uh, for their own oil exports. The other part is because the Asian buyers are still very skittish and the need to build up their stocks eventually. Lose, suddenly lose my, okay. No, uh, they, uh, they will see any sort of significant price decline as a real buying opportunity. Uh, so you've got those two factors. Additionally, Saudi Arabia right now is producing around 10 million barrels a day. Uh, and it would, uh, to, to keep along and, and keep up with its uh, OPEC brothers, it would not uh, be averse to bringing that back relatively quickly, especially as we're getting ready for the next OPEC meeting uh, in June. So essentially what we've seen is we've seen this price increase because of the sanctions and because of the uh, the risks of war and the risks of losing supply. We've started to see a decline because there is so much oil that is floating out on the market uh, and because you've seen some weaker economic indicators. But we don't see a real potential for you, you to suddenly get back to uh, prices you saw uh, you know, after the 2008 crisis where you saw a, a substantial amount of time where you were below you know, $80 or so. Okay, well, thank you very much, Jamie. So that sounds pretty reassuring, uh, York. What do you, what's your sense of uh, global economy and how vulnerable it is? I mean, first, uh, much of what Jamie said uh, we, we agree with. Um, there has been an increase in, in production. Um, for example, Saudi Arabia is uh, presently producing at a level that is a 30-year high. So it's not that they're only taking the big prices. They're actually responding with their output. And undoubtedly, if there was a... Uh, reduction in, in demand for oil, they would probably also scale, uh, scale back somewhat uh, their production. But the key factor that is going to keep prices high going forward is the strong growth that you're seeing in the emerging economies. Um, if you simply do a PPP aggregation of advanced and emerging economies, you will actually see that this recovery is stronger than previous recoveries. But for us, it doesn't feel at all that way because we're living in the advanced economy space where growth is very weak. But in the emerging economies, growth is strong, and that's also where growth is energy intensive, and that is going to keep prices high going forward. Um, now, rather than commenting um, on the very short-term implications, which we will certainly do in the context of uh, uh, our conversation here, I thought I would uh, take a step back and ask the following question. If in, in, in the 1990s, you would have been told that the average oil prices could be at $100 per barrel, uh, in the year 2010. Uh, and uh, you could have been told, like, look, we could also have a, 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 a financial crisis, right? I mean, you probably would have said that either one of these uh, will do severe harm to the global economy. And yet we are here, we were in 2008 at an average price of oil of around $100 per barrel, which is where we are now. And yet during this period of the 2000s, the global economy did just fine. You know, it did, it did quite well. And it wasn't only because of credit-driven growth. We had a large part of the world that was actually uh, performing extraordinarily well in the emerging economies, but there was also solid growth here that in the end was not bubble-driven growth. So the question is, well, how did we make it to $100 per barrel uh, and are still in many ways broadly fine? Uh, and there are essentially, in our views, there are five reasons. First, if you go back to the 1980s, since then, the oil intensity of production in advanced economies, but also in key emerging economies, has declined a lot. So if you look at our oil intensity of production in the advanced economies, it's about half of that of what it was in the 1980s. 
Uh, if you look at the emerging Asia, it's two-thirds of what it was in the 1980s. So the oil intensity of production has come down, and this is a process that will continue. So that's reason number one. Reason number two is that, of course, the oil price increase itself was largely driven by strong demand from emerging economies, a fundamentally sound global economy, rather than by cutbacks in supply. So that helped. Uh, reason number three, and I think we never appreciated this uh, enough, is the recycling of petrodollars. The reason we are often concerned about high oil prices is that it shifts purchasing power from many that are importing oil to a few that are exporting oil. And those few tend to save the oil, but uh, save the revenues, the proceeds. But in the process of saving, they're recycling it to our financial markets and therefore uh, support lower interest rates, more investment, and so forth. So this is the third reason uh, why oil may not have done as much uh, damage. The fourth one is that our labor markets are fundamentally uh, improved in terms of the way they operate relative to the 1980s. You, you look at Europe, uh, you don't see any more unions pushing for wage hikes in response to higher oil prices. People understand that if oil prices go up, this means we have to accept the cut in purchasing power, otherwise we are going to harm output and employment. A fifth reason is the central banks, uh, which have contributed to improving the functioning of labor markets at the price of very high unemployment back in the Volcker days, and which have built up a lot of credibility, and this enables them, when oil prices go up, to keep interest rates nonetheless low, uh, and therefore avoid that there is this big impact of oil price increases which we've had in the 70s uh, and in the 1980s. And this improved operation of central banks is not only a story of advanced economies, even if you look at those that are targeting inflation in emerging economies, they are able to operate in a similar manner and thereby uh, shelter their economies from the fallout of oil prices. So these are five reasons for why this large increase in oil prices has not had such an overwhelming effect on, on global output as we might have expected. That should also give us some assurances about further increases in oil prices in the future for as long as these happen steadily and gradually. Now, why should we still be worried about oil, and why are we sitting here and, and, uh, and therefore talking about it? Uh, uh, let me give you four reasons for that, and then we can go into the details. Um, the first is, oil supply has generally been stubborn to respond to high oil prices. We've had like 20 years, and maybe Jamie can, uh, can correct me or add, expand on that later on, where investment has been fairly limited uh, in oil production. Uh, the cost of extracting oil has increasingly risen because of technological challenges. You're going into the deep seas and so forth because of environmental challenges when you're developing uh, oil sands in Canada. Uh, and finally, also, there are still some regulatory impediments to, to developing oil. So the bottom line is we are on a part of the supply curse, as we nerdy economists say, which is you know, consistent with a higher price, and we will remain there. So we should be worried. And it's a supply that always responds only slowly. And because it responds slowly, yet demand can go up and down fairly quickly, you can have large swings in oil prices, right? And this is what we've experienced over the last couple of years. And the economy generally doesn't like large, sudden swings in oil prices. It copes with those much less well than with steady oil price changes. Uh, and this is a particular concern now because inventories are pretty low and spare capacity is also pretty low in the oil market. Now, another reason why we don't like uh, these large swings is they have redistributional consequences, right? I mean, uh, oil is a heavy expense for the poorer people, 
uh, less so for the richer people. And so whenever oil prices go up, it is the poor that suffer most, poor oil importing countries or the poorer uh, segments in the populations in the advanced economies. Unless you have a private plane. Unless you have. So for the poorer, it is a challenge. Uh, and, of course, it takes, it takes time for government to respond to this challenge. This is not something you can just engineer overnight. Uh, and so this is a problem. I would add that in the current context, it's a particular problem because our advanced economies are fairly weak. The recoveries are fairly weak. We're struggling with strengthening uh, the financial system, um, with rebuilding public finances, and therefore high oil prices are perhaps a particular concern uh, right now at this juncture. But uh, with this, I'll pass it back to you, uh, Uri, and I'm happy to field uh, uh, questions on, on specifics uh, Great. and so forth. That was terrific, and I found the explanation of why oil prices are somewhat um, perhaps less of a concern today. Your five reasons, very, very interesting, very compelling. I, I was wondering whether Jamie had first any reactions to, uh, to what York said. It's sort of a fairly relaxing picture that he's painting as well. Uh, my only, um, and I would completely agree with York on the, on the supply curve and how things are getting more and more expensive. If you go back and move away from what Saudi Arabia needs in terms of its oil revenue and just go into pretending that it's just a regular sort of uh, company in, in terms of what it needs for, you know, say a 10 or 12% return, you know, it costs them 3 to $5 to pull oil out of, out of the ground. But you do have on the on the more expensive part of the curve, which is you know Canadian oil sands. They need about eighty five dollars a barrel, and so and that that price is continuing uh, to march up. So there is this con uh, continued um, upward pressure. The one element of the five that I saw that I at least from what I've seen that there has been a change in, and that is your uh, recycling of the petrodollars. Uh, previously, you're right that the as the as the price would increase and as the uh, Saudis and the Qataris and the Kuwaitis would get additional oil revenues, they would spend that in Europe. They would spend it in U the U.S. So they'd buy, you know, the whole Mayfair district in uh, in London. But things have changed quite a bit now. And so, you know, while we all remember Dubai and and how that was a, a bit of a a bit over overwrought. There, the reality is there's substantial investment throughout that uh, region. And one of the issues that, one of the risks we've started to signal to our clients is this shift of the petrodollars from, you know, heading out and actually being used internally within, you know, the oil exporting countries. And I'm, in, this, in this regard, I'm, I'm talking primarily about um, the Middle East. So that would be the only one that I can see, you know, as we're talking about, as long as these five continue, it seems to me that that has been, that that has shifted uh, in, in recent years. Can I yeah. say something? Yeah. I think this is a very good, it's a very important point. Uh, at this stage, uh, this recycling also, if, if let's say it were to take place, mm -hmm. let's assume it were to take place, it wouldn't make the difference that it usually makes. I mean, we already have low interest rates. The problem is not that there is... Um, there is a shortage a, of savings. A so. shortage of savings, right? I mean, the issue is that the, the banks have very tight lending standards right now for, for good and for bad reasons, for both, right? And so the low interest rates are not really passing through to the economy. 
Uh, and, uh, and, and, and so in that sense, yes, it's not operating. And it's also true, and we fully agree, first they're spending more inside. That is not bad because it also results into more imports and therefore helps the rest of the world. But they're also investing more in, in other regions uh, of the world. That is certainly also an important uh, development. Let me ask uh, Karim uh, here. Is there some kind of uh, nice self-correcting mechanism uh, for Iran in this crisis that is, you know, uh, the more the crisis escalates, the higher the oil price goes or stays high, and the easier it is to sort of uh, manage um, the situation internally in Iran. Um, and, and, and broadening that question out a little bit, what, what, is the, what does the Iranian economy feel these days? How, how does it feel inside Iran economically? Sure. Um, Let's say a couple of things. One is, and, and Jamie can speak about this more than I can, but um, even if oil prices go to $200 a barrel and Iran isn't able to sell its oil, then it's going to have some major difficulties. So at some point, I think that um, when faced with this escalating pressure, um, they'll want to do something to so, show some signs of conciliation to alleviate that pressure. If I had to, uh, it's never wise to make predictions about things, but if I had to kind of anticipate how Iran is going to handle things in the coming months, I would say it may be similar to what Iran did in 2003. When 2000, in 2003, it was a totally different context. If I'm not mistaken, oil prices were, were around $20, $25 um, a barrel. Um, the uh, U.S. military had defeated an Iraqi army in about three weeks, which Iran wasn't able to defeat in eight years. And the Iranian regime was extremely nervous. I was based in Tehran at that time. And what they agreed to do at that time was to um, suspend enrichment of uranium. Um, I think they did it for um, a couple <coughs> of years until the context changed. Um, what I mean by the context changing was that um, um, uh, the U.S. found itself in a big mess uh, in Iraq. Iran um, was increasingly on the rise in assertive power in Iraq. And oil prices um, uh, started to spike significantly. And Iran felt um, less compelled to, to um, maintain that suspension. And I would say this time around, uh, uh, it's not within the realm of possibilities, I would argue, that they would agree to a suspension of enrichment of uranium. Um, but I do think it's a possibility that they would agree to some type of uh, um, 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 a cap on enrichment at a certain level um, in order to stave off this looming oil embargo, um, in order to stave off some of the pressure. And then when the context changes, as I'm sure it probably will, um, then when they will feel emboldened to, to move forward. So that, 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 that's one front. Um, in terms of the domestic uh, Iranian economy, um, you know, this is a, a nation which has been subject to sanctions for um, basically the last three decades. Um, one of the points I always make to people is that um, Iran is different than Cuba, or the Iranian population, Iranian society is different than Cuba, and that um, I think for, for many Cubans, they um, look at the uh, U.S. embargo against Cuba as the, the primary source of Cuba's um, economic uh, malaise, and that's kind of a, a major scapegoat for, for the Castro regime. Um, in Iran, I would argue that's not the case. Um, this is purely anecdotal, but I think many people who have, who have spent significant time in Iran would agree that when you, um, when you go around and you ask Iranians about their, their lives, um, 
nine, if not 10 out of 10 people would say the biggest problem they have in their lives are, are economic concerns, whether that's um, um, incredibly high um, inflation or underemployment, unemployment. And then when you ask the follow-up question and you say, well, why is um, Iran's economy so lousy? It's very rare that people say, well, it's, it's because of the economic sanctions. And if, if there were no sanctions, then the mullahs would be doing a very good job running the country. Um, it's it's uh, overwhelmingly, people say, it's because of um, mismanagement and corruption and, and these types of factors. So I think that um, um, the point is, is that on, on sanctions, yes, I think there, there has been um, a discernible um, deterioration of um, people's quality of life. Um, but it's oftentimes difficult for people to discern what is uh, as a result of sanctions and what is as a result of mismanagement. And the final point I would say on this is that I think oil prices, I would argue, are going to be the single most important variable in determining the, the future of this Iranian regime. Um, what the, uh, Iran has done over the last um, couple of years um, um, has been quite revolutionary in terms of their um, uh, subsidy reform policy. So uh, in the past, um, they would subsidize um, um, gasoline and basic foodstuffs and things like that um, to the tune of, I think, about $100 billion a year. Very, very significant. So you know, there was a time in which um, a liter of uh, bottled water um, was cheaper in Iran than a liter of gasoline. Um, and that's changed. They, they've basically removed um, most of the subsidies. And the logic of removing um, the subsidies was on the part of the regime. They said, well, um, when we subsidize um, um, basic foodstuffs and gasoline, we're helping all Iranians. So the upper class benefit, the middle class benefit. And in reality, the regime recognizes that their constituents are kind of the lower income classes, oftentimes in the provinces, what you know, oftentimes people describe as the pious poor. So why should we also subsidize um, the elite who don't like us and we don't like them? So, so their philosophy was to remove the subsidies and offer people um, cash handouts, uh, and cash handouts to every individual. And this has created a very odd dynamic with the Iranian economy, because I think that um, a lot of the urban middle class living in places like Tehran um, are not getting those um, cash handouts, and they're suffering under um, very high rates of inflation. But if you're a family of eight that lives in the provinces and the inflation hasn't been so dramatic, your standard of living is actually, um, in many cases, improved um, uh, significantly because you're getting a handout for each member of your family. And so that's created basically um, a dependency. Uh, what's this old expression that... Um, um, that um, um, a luxury once had becomes a necessity. Um, and so once you're giving these handouts to people, you can't take it back from them. And these handouts, their ability, the government's ability to continue to pay people directly is directly correlated with these high prices of oil. So, so I think that um, you know, uh, if there is going to be some type of um, political change in Iran, I think it would require some type of a significant contraction of oil prices, which um, both of you are anticipating is, is not um, a strong possibility. Can I, can I ask uh, uh, just how realistic are these oil sanctions? Uh, I don't know if Jamie wants to pick that up or, or Karim. Uh, I mean, uh, is, it, is it realistic that you can block sales of, uh, of oil from Iran, won't there always be 
you know, some smuggling and some there'd be huge incentives sure, sure, for people to buy yeah. it at a at a lower price. But smuggling a VLCC with two million barrels of oil is a little bit uh, difficult than just you know putting it in your car and heading across the border and uh, and doing that. Uh, you're you're right. It um, you know the sanctions right now and the ones that everybody is focused on and should be focused on are essentially twofold. One. Uh, is the Kirk Menendez uh, amendment that was part of the uh, National Defense Authorization Act uh, and was put in and it has a, a number of ways for the president to you know, uh, essentially give a pass for countries, but it essentially is pushing countries, and the, the poster child for this that has complied with this is Japan, pushing countries to make strong efforts to reduce the amount of Iranian oil that they are receiving. Uh, the other part of it is uh, what the EU has done, which has essentially said, come July 1, you know, oil imports from Iran will stop. Uh, and while there has been some indications, at least from a market standpoint, of maybe a potential for that to be delayed slightly, you know, May 1, they were supposed to have a, I'm sorry, April, no, May. May, they were supposed to have a report similar to what the U.S. is doing, which is a report saying, yes, we can or cannot handle this and we can find another, you know, other alternative supplies to the Iranian oil. Uh, so that's supposed to go in in July 1. Now, granted, we've got these couple of meetings that are coming up, and so there is this potential that this could be uh, pushed back. But you're already seeing countries make moves, largely because of uh, getting ready, refiners getting ready because of what's going on in the EU, but also because of these U.S. sanctions, which is essentially uh, a sanction that says, you know, if you continue to do this, we'll, you know, we'll sanction the central bank. It's, it's, it, it's something that could be, it's a very heavy hammer uh, to use. And I personally don't see it actually being wielded. I think it is more of a, something that's kind of to, to strike a little bit of fear and, and for countries, you know, Japan, uh, South Korea, uh, India, China, to try to continue with positive trade relations with the U.S., they will make those steps to reduce uh, Iranian uh, crude flow. So Iran previously was exporting around you know, 2.2 million barrels a day. We expect uh, by July, assuming these all continue to go forward, about 700 to 800,000 barrels a day offline. Uh, so Iran right now is in a point where it is trying to one, find places that it can put this oil. Uh, and so you've seen its um, floating storage rise quite precipitously. For a while, it, it kind of uh, shrunk down as it was making room because the other aspect is these uh, sanctions on uh, insurance for the ships. But you're also seeing them trying to find it and use it in places uh, within the domestic economy. And this is actually where their, their uh, subsidy reform is actually now backfiring on them because now they would... They would actually love for everybody to start using this oil so they don't have to shut down uh, these fields. Shutting in these fields uh, it has negative implications longer term. So this is 700 to 800,000 barrels a day. If you shut those off, you will need to make substantial investments or when you bring them back online, 10 to 40% of that oil will not come back online. It's not just you know at your tap at the faucet where you just turn it off and turn it on. When you turn it back on, 10 to 40% of that oil will not be there again and you're going to have to build essentially build new pipes, uh, do some more drilling, and the NIOC, which is the, the National Iranian uh, Oil Company, has been you know, significantly underfunded for years. Uh, and so it will, there's likely a, a long-term implication that this would see long-term exports decline out of Iran. So you've got 
real pressure from the Iranians that they're going to, they would love to find some sort of deal or something to kind of you know, push this off. And obviously from the U.S. side, if you can have some sort of temporary uh, move that would bring oil prices down, obviously in this election environment, the Obama administration, as we're heading towards the driving season, it would pretty much wrap up the election for them, I think. Okay, uh, before I open it up to the audience, I, I want to ask a little bit about, uh, you know, extreme scenarios, right? So what's, uh, what's an extreme scenario? So one extreme scenario is the Iranians confronted with these, uh, with these uh, oil sanctions that drastically cut their, uh, their exports <clears throat> that work, do some kind of desperate act. I mean, then they're confronted, either they give up or, or they do a desperate act. So some kind of major destabilizing move in the Straits of Hormuz or something like that. I'd like to know uh, from you um, what uh, your probability, the probability you attach uh, to that kind of scenario. That's one type of extreme scenario. And then... You know, I get very different stories. I'm not an expert on this. I, I get very different stories from people I talk to about the likelihood of an eventual attack by the Israelis or the Israelis, I, I don't know, the Israelis and the Americans or the Israelis by themselves uh, on uh, Iran, uh, on the nuclear installations or nuclear potential installations. Uh, because some people say, uh, you know, some people who are really knowledgeable say, you know, this is inevitable, you know, this will come at some point. Uh, <clears throat> if they become convinced that, uh, you know, uh, Iran is really building a nuclear arsenal and can deliver it, it will come. Uh, and other people who say, including inside Israel, by the way, who say, this is crazy, this will never work uh, anyway. Um, so these kind of two extreme scenarios, a desperate act by Iran, or a desperate act, in inverted commas, by the Israelis. Uh, what are the, uh, what is the likelihood of that kind of scenario? And then I'm going to talk to Jorg to see whether, uh, you know, that kind of extreme scenario might upset, uh, uh, might upset the global projections that you have. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll go through one by one. So the likelihood of uh, Iran deciding, and it, it has in, in you know, uh, earlier this year, there were, was some saber rattling about, you know, closing the Strait of Hormuz. They had some exercises there. Uh, but the reality of, you know, actually trying to make attempts to close the Strait of Hormuz with, for lack of a better term, their speedboat navy, um, I think would be, is very, very unlikely. Um, I think, you know, they've already got enough enemies within the region, and I think that sort of act, aside from it also shutting off all sorts of other trade that is important um, for the region, would, you know, point everyone towards Iran. And I think you would you would see a, um, a response, a multilateral re response that would just be absolutely <clears throat> devastating uh, to, to Iran, and it would, you know, destroy their ability to... Um, uh, to ever try that again. Uh, so I really don't see it as, as something that they would try. In terms of what it would do to the oil price, obviously there would, there would be an immediate uh, implication and it would, the length of that, of that price rise and how high it would go would, would deal with you know, how quick the response was, how successful the Iranians were at trying to hold the Straits of Hormuz, you know, if they had any other uh, allies that they were able to hold on to. 
uh, in the region. Um, I actually think, in terms of extreme scenarios, you know, the likelihood of a you know some sort of sudden uh, agreement on enrichment is much much more likely than than uh, Iran going out and, and doing something in the Straits of Hormuz. That doesn't say that there isn't a potential. There are so many ships in the Straits of Hormuz right now uh, that you could have some sort of inadvertent uh, exchange, but that would be rather limited. But you would still see an implication on the on the oil price. On the U.S. side, U.S. slash Israeli side, you know, we had a lot of our clients that have come down and have been very concerned and have even identified the exact date that they believe that uh, we're going to, we or the Israelis are going to uh, invade uh, Iran. Uh, we are... Not invade Iran, but uh, attack Iran. Attack, yeah, attack yeah. Iran, yeah. yeah. Um, so the... I hope, yeah. Well, you never... Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> These are my clients, here, okay? <laughs> <laughs> okay, um... Uh, but we just we don't see that as really a, a, a potential, at least until after the elections. We do actually see a, a higher potential for something happening uh, with uh, Israel and or the U.S. Uh, after um, the elections. And I would agree with you that if you actually speak with military leaders on any of these sides, all of them think it's just a really bad idea. Uh, but politicians and uh, military leaders don't always aren't always aligned. I would agree that um, the, I, I compare um, um, the, the threat of Iran closing the Strait of Hormuz akin to the threat of uh, committing a suicide bombing, <laughs> meaning that uh, they would hurt others, but they would uh, hurt themselves the most. Um, they would alienate um, the Chinese, who is their kind of key, key strategic and commercial patron these days. Uh, but just the threat of it actually has been in the past expedient for Iran. Um, oftentimes, you know, oil prices will be bumped up slightly, one, two, three dollars a barrel. And my math on this may be wrong, but uh, in the past when I did the calculations, even a one dollar, for every one dollar increase in oil prices, it's, it's approximately 800 million dollars additional annual revenue for Iran. So even a one, two, three dollar bump by threatening some general, um, threatening to close the Strait of Hormuz um, can, can be used. War, war through press release. Or press release, <laughs> things like that. Um, so if you, you asked us to quantify the likelihood, I would say less than 10% chance that they would actually follow through on that threat. On the second issue of an Israeli or, or, or U.S. military strike, after uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu visited um, the United States for the APAC summit, my takeaway from that was that the likelihood of, a, of an Israeli strike in 2012 uh, went down, and I would say it's gone down even more significantly uh, in lieu of all of these you know, um, military and intelligence elite in Israel speaking out against it. That said, my takeaway was that the likelihood of a U.S. strike in 2013, as Jamie said, uh, went up somewhat um, 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 uh, just simply because uh, uh, it seemed that o Obama basically... Um, and this was, you know, part of the strategy that was articulated publicly to say that, you know, this uh, policy, of course, of diplomacy need, needs time um, to, to, to take shape. Um, let's give it some more months and, and see what happens. Um, and uh, what I'll end on is saying this, is that um, on one hand, I think whether it's Tehran or Tel Aviv or Washington, um, I don't see any strong interest in some type of military conflagration, apart from maybe some of these hardline elements in Tehran who would see it um, in their domestic interests. Um, all that said, I also don't see a Venn diagram in which the following three circles intersect in one peaceful place. Uh, and that's Israeli national security doctrine or Israeli psychology, um, Iranian revolutionary ideology, and U.S. domestic politics. 
Um, I don't see where these three circles all intersect in one um, peaceful place. And, you know, we can talk more about that in the questions. Good. Yoga, I'm going to make it easy for you because I know that these political discussions are confusing. The, <laughs> the, the, give me what happens, $250 oil for three months. How bad is it? Look, that's the... Uh, let me take a step back before I get to. I, I, I don't think I can quickly come up with with a with a numerical answer to your question. Uh, it certainly is going to be. It's going to be very bad. There's no question about it. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll explain to you why. In first, you had the two scenarios. I think you can consider that Iran is no longer exporting anything, and then the Straits of Hormuz. These are two very different scenarios because Iranian production is like five percent of world production. The Strait of Hormuz carries 40% of world exports. So two totally different scenarios. Let's stay with the first one for the moment. Um, according to our estimates, if Iranian production was to completely stop uh, and there would be no offset anywhere, right, which is not what is actually happening, but if there was none, uh, we would have thought that you know, maybe oil prices would be 20 to 30, would, would rise by 20 to 30%. The question now is how much of that is already priced into the market, right? Because people are anticipating that there is going to be lower production in the second half of the year. Uh, and the remainder that is not priced in the market would then occur once uh, the uh, sanctions, I mean, once there is really a complete breakdown of production, if that is even a scenario, and would affect the global economy, right? And that might be somewhere that's something less than 20 to 30 percent, uh, if only because, you know, others will probably ramp up their production further to compensate for it. Um, so 20 to 30 percent is something that the economy can manage. We, uh, manage. we have a rule of thumb for these smaller price changes, whereby you know a 10 percent higher oil price roughly cuts off 0.2 percent of real GDP growth. So if we say if we let's say had 20 percent higher oil prices, uh, then our estimate for U.S. growth, which for 2012 is 2.1 percent, would be uh, would be 1.9 percent. Um, that said, I've given you the 0.2% impact over one year. In reality, it actually happens gradually over two years, pretty much. So the point I want to make here is uh, certainly this is going to hurt many people in the U.S. economy, uh, some much more than others, uh, also in other advanced economies than in oil importing countries. But that is a scenario that the global economy can manage. Now, if you have uh, other scenarios where oil prices rise by much more, uh, they will come about in... A, I would venture to guess, geopolitical setting that is somewhat more uncertain than what we have right now. And that would certainly not only affect the oil prices, but also financial markets more generally. So you would probably have uh, large sell-offs uh, on stock markets. Um, you would have uh, fear rising again. Uh, there would be uh, uh, less loans given. I mean, loan lending standards of banks would tighten. Uh, central banks already being close to the zero bound in advanced economies couldn't do that much in order to lower interest rates and, and counter the tightening of lending standards. Uh, banking systems are still not very strong and so have less buffers uh, to, uh, to um, counteract. Uh, in the end, then, I mean, the, the impact may well be higher than the 0.2% loss of GDP over two years for a 10% oil price hike that I've given to you. It would certainly be higher. So you can make your calculation once you get up to, 
$250 per barrel, that's a 100%, uh, roughly 100, uh, some 150% increase in the oil price that will probably have a, a significant effect uh, on the economy. We've made a similar scenario, actually, since you mentioned the $250 oil price. We have made a scenario where oil prices rise to uh, such a level, but over 20 years, um, and and those the, those effects would be would be much more benign uh, because the economy can gradually adjust to it. Um, so in a nutshell, I would say oil embargo uh, and loss of production from Iran is one scenario that we can cope with. Anything else will involve multiple events, not only a dramatic increase in oil prices, but also uh, events on financial markets that will leave uh, uh, the economy uh, uh, that will deeply affect the global economy. Excellent. Thank you very much. Well, I'd like to open it up to the audience uh, for questions. Please uh, tell us who you are uh, before you ask your question. And the mic is circulating. Uh, uh, Nida, you want to that gentleman there, yeah. Uh, my name, my name is Mike Sponder, and my son-in-law used to be the, C uh, the chief financial officer of the Energy Department, and I was with the Office of Naval Research. Uh, my question is, because I spent some time with a man named Hannon in, in Harvard recently, he was the IEA inspector ten years in, in Iraq. There's almost zilch chance that any deal is going to be made that will give Iran some time. In other words, if this is either going to be a deal where it's a deal or it's not a deal. It's not, they're not going to buy time. So under those circumstances with this, well, we'll put it aside. What is your view of either there will be a deal or there won't be a deal. There will not be a putting aside. So my question to Kareem is. Want to take multiple? Or? Uh, yeah, why don't you start, take that one. Uh, um, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure I agree with the premise of the question because um, do, did you want to go into more detail? Well, the United States cannot just kick, kick the ball. Well, let me pose a hypothetical about one type of a deal that, that could happen, and that is that Iran agrees to um, a, a cap, a temporary cap on 5% enrichment. There's no way to lock it in permanently 100%. Uh, that's simply not possible. So Iran agrees to temporary cap on 5% enrichment. It agrees to um, send out whatever percentage of its low-enriched uranium, 80%. And it, it agrees to a more intrusive inspections regime. All of those three factors are, are changeable. Um, Iran can at one point in the future say, well, we've now decided we need to go beyond um, five percent enrichment. We've now decided that um, that the inspectors are are spies. Um, you know, none of these factors are, are permanent factors. When and if the context changes, Iran can also change its calculation. So I don't think that there's some type of a deal which is going to be set in stone and which we can permanently count on. Um, but I do think that even some type of an interim deal, which could buy us a year or could buy us two years, that would be something that seems to me the Obama administration um, would be happy signing off on. Uh, yes, the gentleman there and the, and the man. Well, all right, yeah. And then, and then you. Uh, Adnan Watanser from the Energy and Climate Program here at Carnegie. Uh, my question is for uh, Mr. York de Cresson. Uh, it's regarding oil prices and their link to government expenditures. Uh, I was uh, 
one one thing that Karim mentioned was how this perception about what constitutes the desirable price for an OPEC country has changed in the past 10 to 12 years. I remember 12 years ago uh, in a lot of the meetings of, of OPEC, you would see something like if prices go above $25, that would be devastating for us. It will uh, destroy demand and so on. Even if you factor in into inflation into the whole picture, it's still the prices are too high to them, uh, should be too high, but $100 is the price that is, seems to be quite desirable at this point. Now, uh, I have been looking at uh, the fiscal monitor that is provided by IMF and the World uh, Economic Outlook, uh, looking at the expenditure of, especially of OPEC countries and the projections for expenditure. It does seem that some of these countries have started to reduce their expenditure as percentage of GDP and also the projections are that they will continue to reduce that. Uh, could you explain what is the basis uh, for this reasoning that uh, you are assuming that their expenditures will, will keep dropping as percentage of GDP? And do you think that this will have some kind of uh, effect on the oil price or at least their perception about what constitutes oil price? Will we see the days when they would think that uh, $70 or $60 of oil is, is what is the desirable price? Honestly, on the expenditure question in terms of what we're assuming about the expenditures of the Arab countries, I can't give you an answer because I don't have the, if I had the figures in front of me, um, then, then, then I, maybe I could. Um, but in terms of oil prices, I think the oil price overwhelmingly is driven by, on the one hand, global demand, which is accelerating very rapidly, and on the other hand, a supply response that has been very sluggish, right? Uh, and it's not something that is very much driven by domestic consideration in Saudi Arabia with respect to government spending. I think it's these, the other two forces are far more important. And as I said, for 20 years, you've had very little, uh, not yet, yet a sluggish investment in energy production. Uh, and now this has been stepped up, but there are they're lax. It takes 10 years uh, or sometimes more to get uh, the oil to uh, the market from, from, from beginning of exploration. Uh, and, and so I, I would expect that in the end, these are the forces, these two, the demand in the world and the supply that will determine what will happen. And the equilibrium will be a higher price because supply becomes much more expensive to extract, uh, as Jamie just mentioned, for example, the 80 to $85 price for, for Canada is what he mentioned. It tells you that the equilibrium will have to be higher. Uh, and the domestic developments uh, on the budgetary front uh, will, be, will be secondary. Um, I mean, in Saudi Arabia, for example, there's also limits, right, too much, uh, too much uh, to the extent to which they have actually spare capacity they can bring to the market. I mean, they have still spare capacity, but they have also already brought a lot to the market, right? Um, and uh, they also face uh, technological challenges that make it more expensive to explore the oil. But overall, it's the two forces, supply and demand, at the global level that are much more important. Is there anything you want to add? No, nope. I think you're is, uh, yeah. I have a question, and, and uh, I guess uh, Adnan was asking um, about the, the producers and the Gulf producers in terms of their sweet spot, but what about the United States and, and Europe? Um, what, what would if you is there a sweet spot that uh, Washington has or that Europe has in terms of oil prices? Uh, Europe probably about zero, I would say. <laughs> yes, no, go ahead. Yeah, okay. dollar a gallon's nice. That would be good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Look, uh, I, I'm not aware of. You know, I've actually not even heard talk in Europe about the sweet spot for. <laughs> 
for oil prices. I mean, it's something that's being taken as given by global markets. Mm. Uh, and uh, you adjust uh, policy in response to it. Um, uh, and that means you are, uh, you are uh, diversifying your sources of energy, right? Um, you are uh, reducing the energy intensity of, of production, and that's a development that's been taking place for 20 years. I mean, at this stage, oil is used mainly for transport, so the, the challenges in terms of getting away from oil in that domain are a little bigger right, than what we've had in the past, so this, this will raise some, some issues. But um, no, uh, I... I, uh, there's not more I can say to that. Maybe Jamie, yeah, I, I, mean. I mean, we have looked at this, and you know, politically, it's four dollars a gallon when you see the politicians head down to the gasoline station off of uh, Capitol Hill to talk about how horrible it is. Um, but in terms of the reactions of us as American consumers, it's actually around three dollars and fifty cents when we actually start to bring down our our demand and start to uh, and, and start to. Uh, uh, Bring that down. That's 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 the, really the price that we've uh, that we've seen. But for how long will those prices be the ones that uh, mm -hmm. are the sweet? I mean, the, yeah. the, the 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 tipping points, right? I mean, this is something that has changed, right? And yeah, and the reality is that you've also seen, and it's a, I think it's relatively common knowledge around here that the the increase in production here in the United States on both gas and oil, while it hasn't really affected much at all on the oil side, you know, you've still got to pay the the you know, international uh, oil prices, but the boom in natural gas and that bringing down of that price, that has reduced our, you know, heating bills, electricity bills. Uh, so you see, you know, there's less blunt, less um, impact of the uh, of the global uh, oil price on, you know, in terms of consumers, the actual impact on the wallet. However, from a, a um, mental standpoint, they still see that gasoline price every time they you, know, you ride by the gas. I station. actually meant to ask, I'll come back to the audience, uh, but I meant to ask this question at some point. To, to what degree is there substitution between gas and oil? Uh, this shale gas boom, which may also be spreading to Europe and to other countries with these new technologies, um, does it actually in the long term have a significant impact on the price of oil, do you think? Uh, the, you know, in the short term, there's really no quick way to switch in the United States, uh, previously the way that you could you know quickly switch was moving off of um, you know diesel fired or, or uh, you know fuel oil fired uh, power generation, which is largely in the Northeast and, and down in Florida, and move that over to natural gas. But that is a cycle that is largely complete now, mm -hmm. and you can't really do it. There is some you know potential for. Uh, compressed natural gas vehicles, but either you have a compressed natural gas vehicle or you don't. You don't suddenly just switch one day uh, or the other, unlike, you know, say the Brazilians who can switch between all ethanol or all, uh, all gasoline. Longer term, there is a potential to start to move, you know, to move further away from oil. But what is holding it back in my mind right now is something that Jorg was talking about earlier, which is something that neither producer or consumer countries really like with everything that has been going on and that is the the volatility of the price you know it's you know it, it is not so much what is the sweet spot is it $100 or $70 or $60 what actually everybody would really like is just say here's the price you know it'll go a little bit up and down but this you know in the last several years we've gone from you know the 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 range of prices on Brent have been $147 at the top end and $34 at the bottom end and that's a that's an amazing swing, um, and and on the natural gas side in the United States in the last several years, 
uh, $2.90 and uh, I think uh, $10.45. I mean, it's, it's an amazing story. It's very hard to both make plans for capital investments, uh, to plan for your, you know, your kind of business cycle. And then at the consumer side, it's, you know, when you've got this, this um, uh, expense that is just, you know, going up and down and you don't really have that capacity in the short term to adjust it, uh, you really want to kind of, that, that's one thing that everybody is, is, you know, is completely aligned on is everybody would really like to get back to a much less uh, volatile price. Good. And uh, there was the gentleman there in the middle who had the hand up a while. Yes, please. Thanks very much. Uh, Michael Howells from the British Embassy. I'd just say on the sweet spot for Europeans, uh, given that we spend about three times as much on gas as you, uh, I think we've completely forgotten what the sweet spot is. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> just personal aside. Um, thanks very much for an interesting conversation. Um, we've heard quite a bit about one of the impacts of sanctions, which has been on Iran, restrictions in Iran's ability to sell the oil it produces. I want to ask you about a second one, uh, which is that as a consequence of all of the international banking sanctions that are out there, um, their ability to actually get money for what they do sell has been heavily restricted as well. Uh, we've seen them switching to sort of barter arrangements with various countries or taking payments in local currency rather than in real and so on. So my question, first of all, for Jamie is, do you have a sense of, in terms of their actual revenue receipts, um, what the impact of sanctions has been there? And secondly, for Kareem, following on from that, you know, how is that likely over time to affect regime decision-making, do you think? Thanks. Um, I mean, for, the, for, for quite a while, actually, it was essentially the Obama administration's policy to try to not try to actually impact Iranian oil. They still wanted the oil to flow. They just didn't want them to get paid for it. Uh, and so they had a number of a number of sanctions go through on the banking side to really kind of slow that down. So you know it would take you know a, a few months. And the and the real place where you saw this is with India, where it had to move from country to country to try to find a vehicle to move things back to Iran. And so even if the money did eventually flow to Iran, just having it delayed by several months was, you know, was considered a victory um, uh, by the Obama administration. And so you started to see and, and realize that when it comes to uh, oil markets, uh, essentially all oil is traded in dollars, even if the U.S. has nothing uh, to do with it. Generally, you know, if you've got Saudi selling to the Chinese, it's in dollars. Uh, so you started to see the Iranians start to move towards, you know, as you said, the barter arrangements or, you know, going into rupees, uh, the impacts that it had on them, you, you could definitely see it. It was, but it was really difficult to exactly ascertain how, how the impact, uh, essentially you had to do the, you had to do the calculations yourself. And that is because previously, uh, Iran was, you know, one of the most, uh, one of the greatest countries to analyze economically because they had so much data available. They used to be just a, a fantastic country uh, in terms of, of data availability. But since Ahmadinejad has come into power, their amount of data that they provide, uh, you know, their high-frequency economic data has really shrunk up. And so you really have to kind of figure it out yourself. And so it is difficult to determine, okay, well, was this payment delayed a month or was it, or was it three, mo three months? Clearly there was... Uh, impacts uh, and you and the way you could determine that was how much they were trying to to figure it out and how big of uh, of these um, uh, these charges were were building up in uh, Korea and uh, and India. Um, a couple of points, um, and, and that is that um, in the past three decades, when you look at when Iran has made. Um, um, major compromises, whether it was ending the Iran-Iraq War in 1988 
or the decision in 2003 to suspend enrichment of uranium. Um, there have been a couple of factors at play. One is that oil prices have been very low. Uh, when they ended, they made the decision, Ayatollah Khomeini made the famous decision to swallow the poison chalice. Oil was, I think, $9 a barrel. As I mentioned in 2003, when they agreed to a suspension, suspension of uranium enrichment, I think it was around $25 a barrel. So oil prices were low. And the other factor was that the individual who was really spearheading this compromise um, wasn't um, the current supreme leader, Ali Khamenei. It was the former president, Hashimi Rafsanjani, who comes from a merchant family, and all of his four, uh, 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 all of his children, his four sons, became businessmen and merchants. And you look at the individual of Khamenei, he comes from a clerical family, and all of his four uh, sons became clerics. So they have quite different uh, uh, in temperaments, and as I mentioned, oil prices are, are quite high. And this is maybe a tangential answer to your question about how it will affect the regime's calculations. Um, one of the things I think we oftentimes forget is, um, you know, on one hand, there's, there's, there's data, as you mentioned, and the realities of um, facts on the ground. Um, but I think we oftentimes lose sight of whether autocrats um, get that correct data um, from their advisors. And I think what's remarkable for me is how history repeats itself over and over again in the case of these um, dictatorial regimes. That you have an autocrat who basically, um, 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 he, uh, in order to consolidate power, um, he uh, gradually purges all of these elements within the system who um, don't agree with him or aren't um, um, uh, unfailingly loyal to him. And that's what's become, uh, that's what's happened in the past few years with Khamenei. And so you look at the downfall of, you know, going back to the Shah. Uh, and it was the problem, one of the problems was he had surrounded himself with all these sycophants who only gave him good news. Um, Saddam, Gaddafi, uh, Bashar, we, we, we see very similar phenomena in all these cases. So that's one of the things that I kind of keep my eye on on Iran, is whether um, Khamenei is actually um, um, receiving um, objective information from his very, very, very small um, inner circle, and whether he has uh, a realistic grasp of the realities on the ground. I'm not convinced he necessarily has that these days. Good. Okay, we have uh, uh, quite a few questions, so I'm going to group them and then come back to the audience. The lady there in the middle, and then lady here, and the gentleman, yeah. Hi, my name is Sultanat Birtikev, and my question is for Mr. Jamie Webster. Do you think that the increasing oil production in Iraq will have any effect on the oil prices? And if so, how? No. No. Um, we're very bearish on uh, Iraq, where we, we do a lot of work uh, with the companies that work in Iraq. We are, we are present there uh, fairly regularly. Uh, and so Iraq's plans of, I think it was, uh, you know, 12.5 million or 17 million barrels, whatever ridiculous number it was that they put out by 2017, we are, you know, extremely bearish that they will, you know, even be able to get much above uh, their uh, uh, current levels in the in in the short term. I think we expect them to grow by around 200,000 barrels a day, but I think our longer term projections is around you know four million barrels a day. And and as my uh, uh, former boss always said, anytime they get over three million barrels, they get itchy to invade someone. So, uh, but right now it it really is. We are increasingly you know bearish on them. 
And if you go and, and pay attention to what's going on in Iran, they actually have, you have the makings of a, of a potential uh, uh, confrontation, not outside of Iraq, uh, but actually within Iraq, with uh, not just with the KRG and the federal government, but just uh, with Maliki uh, and those are, that are aligned against him uh, within Baghdad. Uh, we're going to take two or three and group them and then come back to the panel. Yes. Uh, Claudia Castiglione, Johns Hopkins. Uh, my question is to Karim. It's about the um, domestic impact of sanctions on, on Iran. Uh, actually, it's a double question, but very brief. The first point is you mentioned the fact that uh, the Iranian case is different from the Cuban case, meaning that the population don't blame uh, the sanctions so much about um, for the hardship of the economic situation. Is it anything changing the last few months? I've, I've, I've seen that there's a Gallup poll that was released in February that indicated that uh, a greater share of the population somehow see a link between uh, inflation soaring and so on and so forth and the sanctions that have been imposed. So my first question is, is somehow changing the situation in in this regard. The second question is about the consequences of sanctions on the uh, possible competition within the leadership. Um, is it possible that, for example, Khamenei is going to use uh, the change in the economic policies of the government for uh, instrumental reasons in order to leg delegitimate the, the incumbent government? Thank you. Gentlemen here. Uh, thanks. Uh, I'm uh, Garrett Mitchell, and um, I write the Mitchell Report. And I'm I've been sitting here trying to sort through uh, an hour and a half or whatever it's been of conversation. And um, I, I I don't know. It's the the uh, Freudian anal in me that sort of says, well, so what what is it we've said or we've learned here today? And I'm having some trouble trying to sort through a you know a one, two, and three, and the only way I could think of to, to sort of get at that question is to say, suppose that the title of this panel today, instead of uh, Iran, oil prices, and the global economy, had been Nigeria, Venezuela, oil prices, and the global economy. What, what would, we have been, would we have been having, because Iran is such a loaded it, it, it comes with all sort of baggage, uh, you know, the theocratic republic and the supreme leader and the, all those sorts of things. Right. Um, so, so I'm trying to I'm trying to sort out what what what, what is different. What is different? And if we had been, I mean, aside from that, we'd probably have some different people on the panel. Uh, but if it had been Nigeria and Venezuela, uh, what? Would the conversation have gone a lot like this? Would it be different? And, and uh, so let me just leave it there. Okay. Uh, well, that's, that's a very good question. And I, I think it, uh, it's a question that we can address to the whole, uh, to the whole panel. Um, is, there, is there any other question? Because uh, I'll take a couple more and then uh, come back to the panel for closing remarks, including addressing that question. Yes. Okay, thanks. Uh, Paula Kerr, uh, retired Department of the Army. Um, I think this is uh, Jamie. Uh, we hear so much about uh, from the government, from the public, everybody's saying that the problem is speculation and that most of these people aren't airlines. They're speculators. They don't have anything in the market. But that's true with any commodity market. If you're in wheat or cotton or anything, 
Most of the people in that market are not farmers, they're not uh, grain elevators, they're in there to speculate. So I don't really see the difference. Is oil different and maybe these incredible swings you were talking about, is this a problem of speculators? But on the other hand, what can we do about it? We can't cut off the commodity markets. I don't, I don't see it, <laughs> what they're complaining about. The lady here, yeah. Uh, there's the mic there, yeah. Thank you. Um, Azita representing myself. Um, I just wanted to ask a kind of a question on the supply side. Um, and um, what I heard from York was that, you know, there is an issue with investment and there is maybe some regulatory impediments that explain the, maybe the lower intensity in production. But um, Karim mentioned... Um, some sort of maybe collusion between the oil companies, and I was just wondering, and I'm not coming at this from a conspiracy standpoint, but I just wanted to understand if, you know, if the rest of the panel, and maybe you can elaborate on it, carry some more, you know, there's some historic precedents for that, is, you know, to what extent, you know, as the lady was saying, you know, can that explain the swings, and um, is that a factor in, in the oil prices? And also just um, on the supply side for Iran, um, you know, because there is this issue with investment and, you know, that is going to affect production. And that, you know, that is Iran's Achilles heel in a way, I mean, oil. So how do you see Iran, uh, you know, approaching this whole issue in the long term? I mean, with the sanctions, without the sanctions? Good. Are there any other questions? The gentleman here, yes. Hi, uh, Jamie Crawford with uh, CNN. I just had a quick question about um, if you're, and this is, I guess, for Mr. Webster, are you seeing any, uh, with respect to U.S. allies, allies like India and South Korea, a diversification um, away from Iranian oil? I know there were, after the legislation was passed in the, in the Senate, there were reports that India was still buying a lot of, of oil from Iran, and some analysts had said, well, it was because Indian refineries um, you know, work better with Iranian crude as opposed to other types of crude. I'm just curious, as we get closer to this um, uh, deadline in, in July, are you seeing any, um, uh, specifically India and South Korea, diversifying their, their stockpiles from, from Iranian crude? Good. So why don't we go, uh, why don't, uh, Jamie, you start, and then Karim, and then Jorg, anything you want to pick up on? Yeah. Um, I'll hit the... Easy one first on uh, India and, and South Korea. Yes, you're correct. We did see, uh, you know, there were a number of countries, and I want to make sure that it's clear here on the, the July 1 uh, sanction uh, deadline. That's really about the EU, whereas uh, the U, the all of these other countries are really trying to comply with the U.S. sanctions, and and this, you know, essentially being able to get a, a, a pass or a, or a, a you know good job from uh, President Obama, so that they will not have sanctions uh, laid on them over the next uh, 180 days, of which I think 11 countries were were granted that. India did increase its uh, its take from uh, Iran quite a bit in the first quarter, and part of this was uh, about the refineries, but it was also partly. I think they recognized that it was, uh, you know, kind of they could probably get away with it in this in this uh, short term. India is, you know, kind of fractious, you know, in that you know the government was of one mind, but some of these and some of the refiners were of one mind of trying to move away from uh, from Iranian supplies, while others were dragging their feet a bit. But I expect that they will start to bring down their uh, their imports of Iran, but they're not going to shut them off. They will just bring them down um, slightly. Uh, 
I'll, I'll hit a couple of the uh, the other ones on uh, speculation. Um, even in my own co company, we're always arguing back and forth on on what the real impacts of of speculation are. My mind is that is essentially it uh, exacerbates uh, the volatility um, a bit. Uh, I don't, you know, the reality is there are fundamental reasons why the oil price is substantially higher than it was, uh, you know, ten years ago. It is, you know, it is about supply and demand. It is not just. Uh, the presence of, of uh, speculators. Um, that said, anytime the price gets high, everybody starts to raise the, the specter of speculators. And that's not just uh, from the politicians here in the U.S. The Saudis always raise it as well because it gives them a nice pass on why, you know, why the price is high. It's, it's not us. It's really about, um, it's really the uh, um, speculator. Uh, and then, uh, uh, as as to what what did we learn here today? Well, I guess it depends on how much you knew when you first uh, walked in here. Uh, but if if we had had a panel that would said, you know, what is you know Nigeria and the implications for oil supply, I think what you would have found is everybody would ask, well, why aren't you talking about Iran? Uh, and that is because when it comes down to it, in terms of the what is going on in the oil markets right now, it is really about Iran and the. The potential for a breakthrough in sanctions, or the potential um, for Iran to do something, or the U.S. to do something, has a greater chance of impacting things than, say, uh, Boko Haram or uh, Mend in Nigeria. You know, cutting off some of the production out of uh, out of Nigeria. A few points about um, um, domestic inflation and whether uh, people in Iran are linking that to to sanctions. Um, and, and whether that's going to affect the regime's calculations. Um, I would say that the, the economic welfare of the Iranian population has never been um, a first or maybe even second tier uh, concern of the Iranian regime in terms of their, their um, uh, political calculations. I mean, this is a government which prolonged the war with Iraq um, for several years for domestic political expediency. So I, I don't see, even with you know, people complaining uh, a lot about inflation and the deteriorating quality of life, that that's going to compel, um, on its own, compel the regime to make um, significant nuclear um, uh, compromise. Um, I, I don't see that happening unless they feel a real, what I describe as an existential angst that the, the the um, future of the regime itself um, is at stake. Um, in terms of how um, the people um, react to sanctions and whom they blame for the sanctions, this is a question I'm often asked. Um, my response is that, uh, my sense is that um, sanctions and deteriorating, deteriorating economic circumstances as a result of sanctions often tend to accentuate people's existing political disposition. Meaning, if you're a supporter of the government and your quality of life is worsening as a result of sanctions, it's one more reason to dislike uh, what they call the global arrogance, to dislike um, the United States for its imperialist um, 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 position. And if you're a big critic of the government, um, it's another reason to dislike the Iranian government um, for um, not worrying about your uh, well-being. Um, and you know, there's a, a common uh, maxim I hear a lot from Iranians is that the regime does whatever it wants and we pay the consequences. Um, so it tends to accentuate people's existing political disposition. But I don't think sanctions turn regime supporters into regime opponents or regime opponents into regime supporters. That's one. Um, second, with regards to... Um, um, 
um, just basically how the regime is talking about the sanctions. This is something that I should have mentioned from the onset. Um, but that is that um, they've, they've actually um, um, changed their um, um, rhetoric with regards to sanctions. For two decades, the Iranian Supreme Leader Khamenei actually used to praise sanctions. He said that he said sanctions are actually helpful to us because they um, force us to become self-sufficient. Um, and he would always, you know, consistently say that, you know, we, we, uh, we welcome sanctions because it forces us to be self-sufficient. Um, now, um, they've made um, the removal of sanctions as a premise of the upcoming nuclear uh, talks. And um, there was a funny statement I saw. He didn't mean it to be funny, but one of the uh, uh, close advisors to the Supreme Leader, um, Had Odell, who's a former Speaker of the Parliament, said that um, sanctions have no impact on us whatsoever, and they force us to, force us to be self-sufficient. But our, our, our chief goal in the negotiations is to remove the sanctions. <laughs> so you can figure out um, you know, what they want for themselves. Now, the, the last question about um, 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 the long-term impact of sanctions in terms of their, their foreign invest, their, their um, ability to um, keep um, uh, production levels. There's a statistic that I've been, I remember seeing back in 2001, you probably saw it as well, um, and this was Khatami's oil minister who said that in order for Iran to maintain its current level of oil production, it needed a $100 billion investment over a decade um, and at the current rate, um, they were only getting half of that in terms of uh, um, um, uh, foreign investment. And that number, the, the uh, amount of foreign investment has dropped precipitously over the last five, six years as a result of sanctions and increased political risk. So that investment is not coming in. Um, their production is gradually uh, decreasing. And this goes back to the um, um, conversation we were having earlier about, you know, is, is the, the leadership in Iran, is Khamenei kind of fully aware of the gravity of the situation he's in? I'm not sure that he is. And, and I'll just end by saying that, you know, one of the discussions which, um, one of the questions which is commonly asked is whether or not the Iranian regime is rational. Is this a, a, a rational regime? Are they a rational actor? And the answer I always say is that for, for me they are in that what's paramount for them is to stay in power. What's paramount for, for Khamenei is to himself stay in power and keep the regime in power. So for, for me that you know, is, is maybe a form of um, rationality. That said, um, I think that if Khamenei um, simply believes that Iran is, if, if Khamenei is, uh, believes in his head that Iran is only pursuing a nuclear energy program, then he's totally irrational. Or that if, if he believes that this nuclear energy program makes economic sense for Iran, that's a totally irrational calculation because the, the costs of this program have been astronomical for Iran in terms of its, you know, the, the, the sanctions and the political isolation and the potential benefits of this nuclear program are really negligible. This is kind of a program which employs obsolete third, fourth rate technology and it's minuscule, um, uh, it can provide a minuscule amount of the, the energy which Iran needs in comparison to um, um, you know, the oil and gas that it has, which it isn't really um, capitalizing on. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, let me take a couple of the questions. First on, on the supply side, I think we believe the, um, the overwhelming uh, determinants here, first, that oil prices have been very long for, uh, sorry, very low for a long time right up until the early 2000s. Uh, and so the incentives 
to explore uh, weren't really there. Uh, second, uh, exploration itself, once it starts, takes a long time before it gets oil to the market, 10 years or so, uh, depending on, on uh, how, how you go about it. And the third is that the, that, uh, the sources of oil that you're ex exploiting now are just much more expensive to exploit. You have to go into the deep seas or in the sands, and so that creates technological challenges, and uh, they have to be addressed, and that takes time. So these are, these are the overwhelming determinants um, of, of supply. Uh, regarding speculation, I mean, in Europe and in various places, it's a pretty loaded term. I mean, I think what we agree on right now is that probably there is in the market some kind of a premium um, that anticipates, you know, uh, in anticipation of less output from Iran going forward. Uh, people are hoarding oil in anticipation of less supply in the future. Um, I mean, that is, they are speculating that the oil price could rise because supply goes down. That's our very legitimate and uh, normal activity. And it sends signals to others that maybe they ought to, there is an incentive for them to increase the oil production. What you have had over the last decade is, however, a development of assets, financial assets, uh, that are priced off. Um, oil prices and, and uh, other commodity prices. And that's new. So people look at this and they say, like, well, you know, this is people you know, gambling in the markets and not sending and, and, and you know, adding to volatility of the oil prices by coming in and out of these markets. Uh, again, there, our, our take is, 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 is much more mixed. I mean, we, we, it depends very much of what kind of investors you are attracting these instruments. If these are informed investors, right, then they will improve the signals to producers in terms of uh, what they should do in the future. If these are uninformed or what we call noise traders uh, in the nerdy economic literature, they will merely add to volatility. Uh, and you probably have both types of investors to different degrees in the market at different uh, points uh, in time. But on the whole, I do agree with you that uh, this debate on, on speculation is really uh, not a central, uh, shouldn't be a central issue uh, right now. Would we have, uh, so what about Nigeria and Venezuela? I mean, I'm the economist. You tell me $10 per barrel more. Um, wherever it comes from, I, I don't care. Uh, so for as long as you have the position that the oil price is happening in a similar geopolitical context, whether it happens in Iran or whether it happens in Nigeria and Venezuela, you wouldn't care. But if it's a different geopolitical context, then presumably it would also have different effects on financial markets and more generally on, on, on uh, attitudes towards uh, risk and uncertainty, and it would have different consequences for the economy. Okay, let me uh, finally ask our panel for a closing remark, and I'd like... Uh, if possible, for them to address the following questions. So I am a finance minister or a CEO, and I am worried that I'm going to be hit by, you know, another oil price shock uh, coming from Iran. Uh, what's the what what what's the in a in a in a in a nutshell? What's your conclusion or advice that you want to give to this finance minister? or CEO worried about, uh, about such a shock. Uh, Karim, you want to start? Uh, I would say a couple of things. I would say, one, the, the nuclear uh, embroglio we have with Iran, um, and I say this from the vantage point of the United States, is not the cause 
of U.S.-Iran tension. It's a symptom of U.S.-Iran uh, tension, and, and there's a much deeper political conflict here at play. So I, I think we should tell this finance minister that it's unrealistic that there is going to be some type of a grand bargain which resolves this issue once and for all. Um, second, I would say that for, for me, what, what I've always um, uh, told European, Chinese, Russian officials is that it's somewhat less important for me um, um, the talking points which are uh, which they use um, uh, in terms of the contours of some type of a final agreement. What's more important is there is some type of a unanimity that when Iran meets with European diplomats or U.S. diplomats or Chinese diplomats or Russian diplomats, they hear the very the, the same thing because when diplomacy uh, and the prospects for some type of a, a diplomatic resolution, I think, um, are at their worst is when. Um, Iran is able to kind of create fissures between, you know, the Europeans and the Americans. That was what they were able to do during the Khatami era. Or um, now what they're trying to do is create a wedge between the Chinese and Russians on one hand and the EU and the U.S. on the other hand. So, so again, for me, what's less important is what is the deal which is uh, offered to Iran, but the fact that, um, you know, all uh, parties in this P5 plus 1 talk uh, are on the same page and, and, and kind of share the same talking points with Iran. Thank you. Jamie? Uh, I guess I would, uh, uh, coming off of uh, Karim, I guess I would uh, uh, reiterate with this, with this finance minister that regardless of what's going to continue to happen, that you're going to continue to have uh, increased and, and pretty high levels of uh, oil price volatility uh, and to be, you know, to have his, his uh, company or country uh, prepared for that, that there is a potential that you're going to see some softening of oil prices in the next a uh, couple of months, but that any price below a hundred dollars is uh, is probably should be looked at more as a buying opportunity rather than you know a real move uh, uh, strongly down there permanently. Um, also, the you know there is that potential still for a uh, a price significantly above the prices that we have right now, but that at least in our mind, you know prices much above a hundred and twenty hundred and twenty five dollars and this is from a PFC standpoint, you know the global economy is really at this point not able to handle it now a couple of years from now that may be uh, that may be different thank you yeah. I mean at first I would say that your energy policy should always be guided by medium to longer run considerations and now if we come to the conjuncture. Um, we would have several messages. I mean, to the finance ministers, we would say, look, if as a result of higher oil prices, your economy um, doesn't grow anymore as much as you expected, and, and therefore your revenues are uh, not anymore as high as you expected, do not cut expenditures in order to meet your original targets. Let automatic stabilizers work. Um, go with a larger deficit to accommodate the economy rather than going against it by consolidating yet more. Um, the second point we would make, and that uh, is uh, regarding central banks, uh, it is important to keep a medium-term focus on price, um, uh, on, on pri of, of price stability. Um, if we have either a short-term increase in the oil price or if it is just an increase in the oil price, that's to say a relative price increase and not a generalized price increase, look through it. There's no reason to be alarmed and rattle the sabers over too high inflation. Um, uh, on the contrary, stay, uh, stay the course. Uh, and, and then finally, I mean, since high oil prices do affect uh, the poorer segments in the population always more than the others, you can have a conversation whether you do want to do uh, something 
uh, for poor people if you want to expand um, social programs or not. But uh, let's not forget that we are in a period where budgets are pretty tight in the advanced economies, so there the scope is uh, not uh, that large. It is different in many emerging economies. I mean, you take, for example, China. They have a much better budgetary position. They can expand their social programs. Also, other Asian countries can do this uh, and thereby weather the shocks uh, better than, uh, than otherwise. So that's uh, where we would be. Um, Excellent. Already. Excellent. Uh, look, uh, so I'll do it to a close, uh, just to say that, uh, you know, uh, uh, from my standpoint, I finished this session a little bit more reassured uh, than when I came in uh, about uh, both the likelihood of a major shock originating in Iran um, in, uh, you know, the foreseeable future uh, for oil markets and the global economy, and also in the event of some uh, significant increase in, in oil prices, uh, that the world economy is better positioned, uh, uh, better positioned to manage it. Uh, I always hesitate to draw a positive conclusion from our events <laughs> from a long experience, but there you are. You know, sometimes you never learn. Um, so thank you very much, all of you, for joining. And thank you very much to our panel. Well done. Thank you.